0: Chickadee Prince Books is the home of great fiction and nonfiction of all genres. Visit us at chickadeeprince.com. That's Chickadee the Bird, Prince the Son of a King. Declare your independence. <sighs>
1: I'm Wado Hugh. In the 1860s, I was a young man, and I was in love with a woman named Lucy Billings. But she left me, all of a sudden, without warning. A while later, she married a man named Daryl Fawley, an English aristocrat and mid-level embassy functionary who took the shocking step of turning outlaw or revolutionary or something, and his wife, my Lucy, vanished into infamy with him. When Folly and Lucy vanished, I was a drag rider bringing up the rear of a cattle drive 1,500 miles north across the Western Plains, and I heard nothing of it. I was dirty and bathed in sweat, my clothes and my lungs coated in the dust kicked up through the blazing heat by the stragglers at the back of the herd. I owned nothing but my clothes and my saddle. Even my horse belonged to the ranch bosses, and on every trail we left more than one colleague in a shallow grave. By the hour, I cursed the swing riders and the flank riders I could see through the dust and the invisible point men who rode way up in front and who didn't know my name but could determine my destiny. On the very day the English government made public Fawley's disappearance, I was pushing across the Powder River in Wyoming, trying my best to keep my cattle and myself from drowning. Of course, the trail boss couldn't deliver us the morning papers, and even if he somehow could have, I would not have spared even a glance. All I longed for as the long days passed was to eat, and then to sleep. Being exhausted and hungry helped me to forget. Even though Folly had taken with him the former Lucy Billings, I remained, perhaps willfully, ignorant of their story. My banishment to the magic of the most desolate parts of what you would call the Old West, but which was at the time the New West, had cut me off decisively from the civilization I had once known. Why did Lucy leave me? In 1874, I met a remarkable woman named Emmalina, a practitioner of some sort of dark arts, I guess. She said she could bring me back to the very moment when Lucy left. Somehow, to roam through time and to discover the truth, to return to the world of July 1863.
2: Follow me down the rabbit hole.
1: I have my ghosts. In a way, I am a ghost
0: myself. The Strange and Astounding Memoirs of WattoHue, a radio drama based on the novels by Stephen S. Drachman, starring Sal Rendino and produced by Danielle Wu. This week, Episode 9, Down the Rabbit Hole.
1: Do different decades smell different? Does the tickle of a breeze or the heat of the sun in the 1860s feel different from the wind and the sun in the 1870s? I'd never wondered before, but when Emmalina deposited me on 23rd Street between Broadway and 5th Avenue on a sunny July day 11 years in the past, I felt that even the air itself did not look the same. People did not move the same way. Everything was different. The past itself does not seem real when we visit it. There I was, in my best going-to-meeting suit, standing before the Fifth Avenue Hotel, a bouquet of flowers on my arm. Built of gleaming white marble six stories high and held aloft by rows of small columns fronting various fashionable stores, the hotel had served as Lucy's Tony home for a brief fourteen months. But on that fateful day, all those years ago, she already seemed an integral part of its mystique. I stepped into the spacious reception hall with its frescoes and marble tiles, past the reading room and the elegant bar, which was already, at this hour, jammed with the oblivious and doomed gentlemen of the moment, many shortly to be ruined by the terrible gold crisis of 1869.
2: Well, what, oh Hugh? Lucy. Flowers.
1: Golden hair danced about at her shoulders. Our eyes locked. My mind reeled. My world whirled. I fell for her more deeply than before. I was lost. You look beautiful, Lucy. Beautiful and wise.
2: Dressed for this afternoon's lecture... Oh, I've been rehearsing and rewriting, you know. A bit of political theater, I think. A splinter group of the Knickerbocker Ladies' cotillion has taken up the suffragist cause, and they invited me to elucidate my thoughts on the right to vote.
1: You look savage.
2: I haven't pinned my hair into a chignon. I will appear every bit the proper society lady by the time I get there.
1: Play the role. Fool them all.
2: You tired? tired. Old. You've aged ten years in a day. Around the eyes.
1: The first New York draft notices are published tonight in the Evening Post. Just worried, I suppose.
2: Oh, you've come to the right place. If you're drafted, I'll pay your way out.
1: You'll bribe some other poor five-point sap to get killed in my place? Perfectly legal, Lucy, but questionable from the standpoint of social justice.
2: (laughs) "'Consider yourself an aster, my boy. "'Asters never die, you know.'"
1: She bounced through her doorway, and I caught a glimpse of the lavish trappings inside her home, the fine furniture and expensive oil paintings expected of a cultivated lady of society, as indeed she was. I longed for that flat, for my nights in that flat. I longed for Lucy in that flat. I longed for Lucy, who naively thought she could protect me from the coming war, from death, from everything bad that fate had in store. I put a hand on her shoulder to draw her to me, and as the old fire lit up in her eyes, I felt my presence in this decade grow shaky. A time-roamer cannot change the past, and if there were any risk of that, I would be cut free and shot back through the vortex. So I withdrew. Hungry?
2: Famished.
1: Take me to lunch. We swept up the massive white marble stairway to the spacious hall on the second level and into an enormous dining room with broad windows looking out over the bustle of Madison Square, the carriages clamoring up the avenue, and the throngs flowing along the broad sidewalks. The restaurant was already filled nearly to capacity with hundreds of lunchgoers. You seem a bit hesitant.
2: You know what? Some society women... Well, ever since Negroes won the right to vote, some of our less enlightened society women, they want to be able, I suppose, to outvote the newly enfranchised Negroes, to stifle their new power.
1: What do you intend to say today?
2: Oh, if they are like-minded and right-minded, they will be tickled and pleased.
1: And if they are not?
2: I think they will be. They're a good bunch of radicals. And then, tonight, you and I will celebrate in our usual grand style. And this coming weekend, I will entertain you in the surrounding countryside. And for many weeks of summer to come, Watt.
1: What is it, Lucy? Lucy? You're looking rather affectionate.
2: Why don't I skip this afternoon's presentation? Why don't I skip the rest of my life, Watt O'Hugh III? Why don't I change course? I have enough money to settle upstate, even if I marry a poor boy. You look odd, Watt. You look smoky. Inconsequential. I I don't even know what I mean by that.
1: I knew what was happening. In a moment, unless I took control of the past, Lucy would be sitting alone at the table. Or back at her apartment, all memory of my visit erased from her mind. Go to the meeting. You'd hate yourself if you didn't go to the meeting. We'll, We'll talk tonight.
2: You don't sound very happy.
1: Because I know what's coming because I know how this afternoon will end.
2: What could you mean by that? Whatever could you mean?
1: I'm very happy for you. I'm very proud of you. I'll marry you in a minute, Lucy, darling, if you mean it. All right? We'll make our plans tonight. I made my way through the hazy, smoke-filled hotel air, past porters lugging heavy trunks, brimming with ladies' summer wardrobes, until I reached the meeting hall. Vast and elegant, yet utilitarian at the same time. I sat in the back, the only man in the room. A few puzzled ladies looked my way, but most ignored me. Perhaps many could not even see me, this demon from an ugly future.
2: I have thought for some time about this day. About what I wanted to say to you. The rights. The rights we all...
1: I held my breath as though the events of the afternoon were not preordained, as Lucy pondered whether to confront the frauds and moralists before her. I fervently wished that, this time around, things would go differently. I could see the gears turning inside Lucy's head, her face hardening as she consciously rejected the bromides she saw now in her pages of notes. She turned away from the lectern and gazed angrily into the fat, pale faces bobbing before her like so many porpoises in a stormy sea.
2: Suddenly, for the very first time, I find myself unwilling to overlook your lies, your bigotry, your sexual insincerity, and your racial hatred.
1: At the worst possible moment, she no longer wanted to be a part of their gold-plated world.
2: Hypocrites! Might I outline in graphic detail the daily life as I observe it as one of New York's ruling class trollops, an upper-class lady who meets a lower-class companion, or the boyfriend of her sister or daughter, perhaps, in the elegant yet seedy uptown restaurants in the early afternoons, then squire him off to a downtown apartment kept with her husband's idle acquiescence for rendezvous of this sort. You do not feel you are breaking anyone's trust, since you married the man who shares your chamber only after your first lover, a man your liking, but not up to your social standing, made you with child at the age of seventeen. Yet again. And your father refused to pay for yet another visit to Madame Rastel, the wealthy abortionist to Manhattan's ruling classes. Whose mansion on 5th Avenue and 58th Street represents a sprawling, extravagant, and taunting rebuke to the licentious rich and your indiscriminate children, as though I need remind you, and insisted that something be done, and done quickly, leaving you with a passionless, almost neutered marriage. And a child who resembles and daily reminds you of the man who, in the distant mists of memory, still makes your heart pound, still makes you fall to the bed in a swoon. You, urbane, cotillion ladies, feel you must hide, as though such things are shameful carnal desires more passionate, important, and indeed urgent than the irrelevant right to choose a corrupt Tammany Hall fat cat to take bribes for Boss Tweed as local city council representative. I must condemn you today for channeling the desire for the freedom you truly need into this utterly pointless exercise— Do you fear truly fear, as your propaganda states, that if the Federal Constitution were not amended to grant the women of New York the right to vote, freedmen from the soon to be defeated South would storm the cities, ooze up Fifth Avenue like a like a river of molasses, rip each rich lady from her effit husband's sickly arms and ride her into the night like a white bareback horse? Instead, I suggest that you secretly desire this. You read your pamphlets by candlelight after your husband, fat and exhausted in his marble palace bedroom after a morning crushing the poor of the city and an afternoon spent whoring, has fallen instantly asleep. You read this again and again again. You imagine these men arriving from the land of swamps and bogs and sweat and muscle. Your eyes scan the purplish paragraphs over and over in your back parlor when the lights are low and the blood rushes from your head. And you no longer think as a woman of society, a woman with a teacup in her hand and a finger sandwich in her mouth. Why must you continue to punish the world for your shame? Must an earthquake swallow you whole? Must Jesus himself walk on water in your very own bathtub before you will admit who you are and demand to take pleasure where you find it? I have brought with me today, Miss Smith, one of this hotel's own colored cleaning women who will speak to you and who will demand her own rights. No less legitimate than those you seek. What?
1: Emelina, what are you... Why are you here?
2: There's nothing we can do.
1: The chairwoman of the meeting reached the dais and leapt to Lucy's side, petticoat and bloomers fluttering as she flipped and flew like P.T. Barnum's most graceful acrobat contortionist, "'grabbed hold of Lucy's chignon "'and pulled until the bun had come loose. "'Fingers and fists tugged at long, beautiful blonde curls. "'Lucy's neck snapped to and fro like a piece of rubber, "'left and right, back and forth. "'And then other suffragists jumped in, "'grasping and pulling and dragging, "'and in a few cases, kicking and punching "'until all of them were rolling about on the stage "'in a great screeching purple and blue ball "'of silk and velvet and lace.' Outside on the street, in an unrelated catastrophe, New York was about to descend into riots and burst into flames. Already the screams of bystanders and miscreants wailed faintly in the far distance. Inside this hotel meeting hall, hands and knees pummeled the woman I loved. Somewhere out there on the city streets, in a few hours, my younger self would fecklessly try to save the city's little children from the lynch mob's noose. Yet even with all this knowledge and with all this urgency in my heart, there was nothing that I could do about any of it. The suffragists ran screaming around me, and as my desire to save Lucy grew stronger, they ran straight through me. Emmelina and I hurried out of the meeting hall into a hotel promenade, now flooded with gaslight, where together we slipped from the moment. Our hands clenched tightly together. We slid through the darkness that separated me from my past and we landed with a very gentle thump in Wyoming's dusty mountain snow.
2: Against the Glare of Darkness by Mark Laporta is the gripping science fiction trilogy that critics have called an engrossing far-future reality of galaxy-spanning civilization that combines the best of space opera and science fiction, read Probability Shadow, Entropy Refraction, and coming soon, Infinity Afterglow, The exciting series conclusion. Get your copy today at your local bookstore or wherever books are sold. Well, Watt, that was quite an afternoon. Quite a performance. Where are we? Back in Wyoming, Watt. Present day. We are no longer roaming the past.
1: Lucy was never one to do as she should.
2: Too disobedient, even to engage in a bit of organized civil disobedience.
1: (laughs) Oh, look. Self-educated, impossible temper, fierce intelligence. A moral code that seemed to have wandered lost through a mirror from another world.
2: When Lucy fled New York, she did so with her mind filled with genuine love for Wat O'Hugh III. She will always be yours, no matter how many miles, years, or gentlemen callers separated you both.
1: I guess she thought she'd get respectable in London, settle down to a regular, comfortable life. That sort of thing eludes her.
2: You love her still. You will always love her. Now you know that she loves you as well.
1: I'm sorry, Emelina. I'm sorry. Lucy made me giddy, entranced, crazy, and worse. I was happy with Emelina. Now, decades and decades later, I can say that I think I was never as happy, before or since, as I was riding that rickety train with Emelina, A new future, we thought, opening up in front of us. "Emelina, I must be out of my mind.
2: You must be. You must be crazy, Watt O'Hugh.
1: She spoke to me again in my mind, her lips not moving.
2: You can join us. Don't you see what, my darling? What I can offer you if you will turn your back on the past and Lucy villains and terrible memories? Join us. Become like me. Never get old. Never die. Or at least, not for a very... Very
1: long time. With these words, and without warning, Emelina and I spiraled up above the mountain peaks like fireworks into the speckled night sky. I saw the brown tips of dry and brittle trees and our little smoldering campfire far below us, a glowing pinprick amidst hundreds of gray miles of dusty, grassy plains. I felt the night wind blowing through my hair as we glided into the sky.
2: I cannot be saved because I do not believe. You cannot be saved because there is no one to save you. St. Peter cannot await your arrival at the pearly gates because there are no pearly gates. There is no God. There is no Jesus. Not anymore. All that exists is what you see the parched Wyoming plains and our dried-out stream and the mountains on the far horizon. You have a few more years of life, or a few thousand, or more.
1: There were others like her, legions or a small exclusive club, I didn't know. Tang was like her, and yet they'd never met before that evening by the cliff wall. I wondered who they were, what they were. I turned to her and she was floating in the stars, a beautiful constellation holding out her hand to me. Had I reached up to touch her, who knows how high we would have flown. This program starred Sal Rendino
0: as Watto Hugh and featured Emily Dalton, Jordan Gwizdowski, Morrison James, Arnold Kim, Annie Mack, Anthony Tether, Mabel Thomas, and Eric Yang. Theme song and incidental music composed by Derek K. Miller, with additional incidental music by Danielle Wu. The Strange and Astounding Memoirs of Watto Hugh was produced by Danielle Wu.